0: If you will turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. Now you remember that Jesus' ministry just continued to grow more and more popular. The crowds were larger and, and Jesus was being hampered in his movements now. You remember that he headed across the Sea of Galilee away from the Jewish side over to the Gentile side. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was the Decapolis that was the 10 Gentile cities. One of those Gentile cities was Gadara. And you remember, Remember that as Jesus and the disciples make their way over and as they land, that there was a Gadarene that was uh, demonically possessed and he was living in the, in the graveyard. And you remember that he comes rushing down and, and the demon in him recognizes Jesus. And you remember that Jesus casts out the demons that are in him. And you remember they didn't want to be disembodied spirits. And so they requested, can we go into the herd of of pigs that were there. And you remember that Jesus gave permission. And as soon as he did that, you remember how they just destroyed the pigs, the entire herd raced into the sea of Galilee and drowned. And then the herdsmen that were keeping track of them, they ran into the city to tell everybody what had happened and to blame Jesus, that Jesus was the reason that this happened. And they all came out now to see what had transpired. And when they came out, they saw this man who they knew, That had been demon possessed, it said clothed and sitting in his right mind. And you remember that, that they were afraid. They had suffered an economic and catastrophic loss of the herd and, and now blaming Jesus for it. They were afraid of Jesus. And, and you remember that they asked Jesus to just leave. Will you just depart? And we talked about uh, how Jesus will not stay where he's not wanted. That if you don't want him in your life, if you don't want him in your home, if you don't want him in your community, if you don't want him in your nation, And you ask him to depart, that that the Lord will depart. And so he was getting into a boat and crossing over to the other side. And you will remember that uh, that the demon-possessed man, he he goes to Jesus and says, Please, let me come in the boat with you. Wherever you are, that's where I want to be. And so he wanted to join Jesus' ministry team. And and you will remember that Jesus uh, commissioned him for a different ministry. He said, No, go back to your home now. And go to your community and tell everybody about the great things that God has done. In your life, and how we talked about—that's the same commissioning that God has given to every single one of us. That we are to share our testimony with the people that are around us. This is who I was before Christ, and this is who I am now in Christ. And give God the glory for the great things uh, that He has done. And I believe that it is the testimony, our testimonies, that uh, that create interest uh, in others when they hear about the great things that God is doing. Doing in our lives. And they don't have great things going on in their lives, but to know that God wants to do great things in their lives. And, and they're invited to the same relationship with God that, that we have. And so our testimony to just share with the people that we already know what God has done, that's giving God the glory for the things that he has done, just giving him credit where credit is due. And so Jesus just sends them back to the community to just simply do that and You remember he crosses over to the other side, back over to the Jewish side. And man, the minute that he lands, they're waiting for him. The crowds are huge and they come. But there was one man whose need eclipsed everybody else's. And that was Jairus. And he was desperately in need. His daughter was laying at death's door. And the minute that he heard that Jesus had landed back, he raced. He was the leader of the synagogue. But you remember that he falls on his face in front of Jesus and pleads with him to come with him to his house where his daughter lie, and you will remember that Jesus agreed to go and they start to head but there was the woman that had the issue of blood and you remember that she believed if she could just touch the hem of his garment just touch it that she could be made whole and so she comes up from behind Jesus as the crowd is pressing through the streets and she lays hold of the hem of his garment and instantly she's healed and you remember how she just is ready to just sneak off with her blessing. And the Lord stops her and asks, who touched me? And, and she knew she was busted. <laughs> and so she just confesses and she tells the, the whole story. Now, the question that I've got was that she touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. Was there power in the hem of Jesus's garment is did everybody who touched the hem of his garment were they all healed and, and and is that what happened today people believe that if you'll go and touch a certain stone if you'll drink water out of a, uh, a certain well if you will climb certain steps if you will crawl on your knees along a certain path that uh, that you now will receive what what you desire and and so the question is is was there really power in the hem of jesus's actual garment i mean is it because it was connected to him while he was wearing it that the flow of power went you know through his garments but the answer to that is no there was no power in the hem of his garment the power was in christ And what happened is that she believed her faith uh, was that if she could touch it, that she would be made whole. And you remember that that was just a a touch point to release her faith, but that she came to Jesus by faith. And Jesus said it was your faith uh, that has made you well. And so she apprehended God by faith. She met God by faith by touching the garment that was the release point of her faith but The Lord didn't want her to ever think that there was power in the hem of his garment. He didn't want her to walk away thinking that that it was in the hem of his garment. And he didn't want her to walk away thinking that she had taken something from God. God had met her in her faith and had healed her according to her faith. And so Jesus now makes sure that she walks in truth. And now he says you can depart in peace. Knowing the reality of what has transpired. you'll remember that just as soon as, uh, as that happened that there were the servants that came from Jairus' house, and they informed him that it was too late, that his daughter had just passed. And you'll remember that Jesus said, "Now hold on to me by faith, and everything is going to be okay. Just believe, just trust right now." And so he goes with Jairus to his house. And do you remember the professional mourners? And and as he goes by them, he lets them know that she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And do you remember how they scorned him? They they mocked him because they knew that the life was out of her. And Jesus goes in, puts everybody out of the house. Just Peter, James, and John are there and the parents. And you remember he, he walks over to the little girl and he picks up her hand and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And you remember that immediately life came back into her body and she sat back up. He had resurrected her back to life. And and then you remember that he tells the parents now, don't tell everybody, don't broadcast this miracle. Why does why does Jesus say that he says that because although he was. Performing miracles. He didn't want a reputation as being a miracle worker. He was much more than a miracle worker. He was here to be the savior of the world and to rescue mankind from their sin. And yes, he performed miracles along the way, but he didn't want the reputation of miracle worker to cloud the true purpose that he had come, which was to redeem the world. We're going to see in this ninth chapter now that Jesus' ministry is going to shift. We're going to see that now Jesus is in the final six months. Beginning here in this ninth chapter, he's in the final six months of his ministry. So the cross and his crucifixion is now starting to come within eyesight. And now his chief focus is to really pour into these disciples and get ready for them now to be apart from him when he ascends into heaven and is no longer with them. And so we are going to see that, uh, that he is going to empower them and send them out now to go and to minister. Up until this point, Jesus has been doing all the ministry and the disciples have just been basically crowd controlled. But now we're going to see that he is going to empower them and send them out two by two. We're going to also see afterwards in this chapter, we're going to see one of the miracles that Jesus does, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to look at that incident. Now, what is interesting about this miracle, Jesus did a lot of miracles. And there are a lot of miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. But here's something that's interesting. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. No other miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. So there's something about this miracle that now God wanted us to be able to come across in every single Gospel that we read. He wanted us to encounter the feeding of the 5,000. So what's special about that? And what are the lessons in the feeding of the 5,000 that are relevant to us today? And then after that, we're going to see that Jesus is going to head north up into Caesarea Philippi and, and against the backdrop of the idolatry, the pagan idolatry that's there, Jesus is going to ask the single most important question that there is in life. There is no question that is more important. And he's going to start by leading up to that with a second question. That second question he asks is, who do people say that I am? And then he's going to bring it down to the most important question that there is in life. Who do you say that I am? And that very question is the question that divides the entire world as to who do you say. That Jesus is. Let's jump in here to this gospel, chapter 9, Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And, And so you remember in the commissioning, the great commission that's found in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has all authority in heaven and upon earth. And so what does he do with that authority? He commissions now the apostles, the 12 to go out. He gives them limited authority. It's specifically over the demonic realm and then also over disease as well. And it says in verse two, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he, he, he sends them out. Now notice the order to preach the kingdom and uh, to heal. Notice that throughout the scriptures, we always see that the spiritual comes first and then the physical afterwards. And that is the the priority. The spiritual is more important than our physical condition. The Bible says, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world, but lose his Soul, And so we see that the soul is eternal, but the body, that's just what houses your soul. And that's only temporal. And so Jesus is always going to minister to the most important first and then to the lesser. And so your spiritual condition is more important than your physical condition. It's interesting that when we see each other on the street and we say, how are we doing? Normally that refers to. Physically, how are you doing? How's everything going? But the more important question would be, how's your soul today? How is your soul? How are you doing spiritual? What's your spiritual health? Uh, And so here we see, go preach the kingdom and then also uh, heal the sick as well. And then he kind of coaches them up in verse three and. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics uh, apiece. In other words, they weren't supposed to pack their suitcase with wheels and start dragging it around, you know, from town to town with them and and having all of their provisions uh, uh, with them. They were to travel with nothing. He says, you're not allowed to take anything. You're not even allowed to take your American Express, which you're not supposed to leave home without it. Uh, but here they were told, not even bring your money back. Don't even bring your money. Why? Because Jesus is teaching them an important lesson here. And the lesson that he's teaching them is when you are doing ministry, you cannot be self-sufficient in ministry that you have to be completely dependent upon God for the provision of everything that you are going to need. One of the big detriments to ministry is self-sufficiency. God never asked us to do anything in our own strength. Whenever he calls us, he is going to empower us and equip us with everything that we need for the task. And so our tendency is to want to do it in our own strength, to do it in our own comfort zone for them to bring everything that they're going to need. You know, Clothes, check. Money, check. Food, check. Everything that we need. We got it. Okay, we're ready to go. We can take care of ourselves. But the reality is that when you're ministering to others, you've got zero resources to be able to care for the worries, concerns, and the cares of others. You are going to need the provision of God. And in order to do that, you have to start trusting God. And so he's going to teach them that they need to start walking by faith and not by sight. And so he tells them, you're not, you're not allowed to take anything. You're going to have to learn how to depend upon my provision in your life. He goes on then to tell them in, Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart and whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So you're just going to start to head out the other Bible. I mean, the other gospels tell us that they go out two by two. And, uh, and so they're going to head six couplets of disciples are going to head out in all different directions. And, and here's the thing that I want to know that the the gospels don't tell us is who got paired with who I want to know the pairings. I want to know who ended up with Peter and who ended up with John and Andrew and who got Simon the zealot. And I want to know who was paired with Judas Iscariot. (laughs) I just want to know, you know, about that. And so, so they, they are going to get sent out. And so they're just going to be led by the spirit and head into the town. They're just going to start witnessing. They're just going to start to to share with people that are at bus stations and uh, standing in the park and in all the different places that uh, that they're going to have. And they're just going to start talking to people and they're going to see where those conversations open up, who is open to the kingdom of God to be preached to to them. And then who's going to open up their house to them. And and so when someone opens up their house to them, he says that you're supposed to stay in that house the whole time that you're in that community. And use that house as your base of operation. So what you're not supposed to do is to take the first available house. And then the next day you meet someone that has a swimming pool in their house. (laughs) And so you start moving your ministry over to their house and they've got a bigger one. And then you end up at the mayor's house. Uh, You know, you're not allowed to do that. You're to go where God provides for you. And then you're to stay there because it's not about your provision. It's just giving you a base uh, to work within. And remember that the houses were the base of operation in the early church. That was where they met and, and where those doors opened up and whose homes were available. And so he says, if nobody opens up their home to you, what are you supposed to do? And he says, just keep moving, just keep moving. They weren't supposed to try and force their way into people's hearts and into people's lives and into people's homes. And, and the very same principle is in operation for us today. Don't try and force Christianity onto anybody. Don't try and kick open doors and cram truth down people's throats. And don't start yelling and start fighting over the, uh, the truth of God's word. And, and oftentimes it can be frustrating and it, it can make us angry when... When people are, are deceived and they're talking about truth, but they're not walking in the truth. But what God calls us to do is to just take the word of God. Remember the parable of the sower. He just takes the truth. And what did he do? He just sprinkles it. He just goes forth and sprinkles. And when truth lands on the soil, it's up to truth. It's up to the seed then. To do what the seed is supposed to do, to be able to put its roots down and to be able to sustain and to grow. And that's that's not what God calls us to do. We can't start to force seed into people's hearts and into people's lives. It, it gives us a bad reputation. It's counterproductive. It's not what God has called us to do. He calls us to love everybody, to present truth to them. And if they don't receive it, then just Brush your hand. Keep on moving. Don't be offended. Just keep on following the leading of the Lord. And so verse 6, it says, And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing where? Everywhere They just head off in the direction as the Lord now is just leading them, as the Spirit is just leading them. They just kind of head out. In verse 7, we see that Luke shifts gears here. And it says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. That's by Jesus. So this is Herod the Tetrarch. That's different than Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill all of the babies in order when Jesus was first born now. But this is Herod's son. And he is Herod the Tetrarch. So he's Herod that was over the region of Galilee. Now, remember that Galilee is where Jesus' ministry was centered. And so he's hearing a lot of reports about Jesus. This is the same Herod that married uh, his brother's wife and took her unlawfully. And this is the same Herod that then had uh, John the Baptist arrested because he was speaking out against uh, his marriage and you'll remember that it was his birthday and he has his wife's daughter dance for entertainment and and afterwards he says anything you want up to half the kingdom tell me what you want that i might bless you and she says give me the head of john the baptist on a platter And Herod, now all the nobles were there, all the important people were there when he had promised to to give her whatever she wanted. And and so Herod gives the order for the execution of John and his head is brought uh, on a platter. And so now John the Baptist is beheaded and Herod is now hearing about uh, the continuing events of Jesus and is wondering just exactly who Jesus uh, is. And so it says that the Herod, the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And so that might have been a guilty conscience on Herod's part that he's worried that John the Baptist was risen from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And so here we see that the people couldn't explain the the supernatural power of Jesus. And so they were imagining all sorts of different things. And so the word on the street was not consistent. It was all over the place. And really that's not much different than where it is today. If you ask people who Jesus is, some will say that he's a fictitious character and never even actually lived. Others will say that he was a great teacher. Others say that he was a great man of God. Others will say that he was uh, that he was a prophet. And so you have many different opinions as to who Jesus is. And and so just like Today, there were many opinions back then. And Herod is trying to reason it out. He's trying to figure out who Jesus is in verse 9. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see him. So Herod is seeking an audience uh, with Jesus. In verse 10, we see that. That now the apostles have come back from their short-term mission trip. And it says in the apostles, when they had returned, told them all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And so the disciples return. The crowds are still mobbing Jesus and the disciples now come back and they have got stories. Oh my, have they got stories. I mean, it's one thing when you're watching you're watch, somebody else do something that they know how to do. And they're kind of teaching you how to do it. And so they're doing it and it looks easy because they make it look easy because they know what they're doing, <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> And then they say, okay, now your turn. (laughs) And and suddenly now doing what others know how to do and you're trying to do it for the first time, it is difficult and and it is hard. Well, they've never cured anybody before. They've never cast out any demons before. They're fishermen and businessmen and and various different people. And now Jesus just paired them up and told them to go out and start doing this. And so, you know, it says they they were preaching the gospel and they were also healing people people and casting out demons and so I would love to hear some of those stories of of the first time that they came across a demon possessed person and they're not with Jesus and they're like okay your turn, you go ahead and try, you know, this one. I'll tell you what, you do the first demon possession, I'll take the first sick person, you know, and and we'll alternate, you know, every other one. I mean, I don't know, they're just, they have never done this stuff before, and so, you know, I just imagine, here they are trying to heal a sick person for the first time, and they're like, okay, how would Jesus pray again, you know? Oh, God in heaven, just heal this person. (laughs) You know, and all of a sudden it worked. They were suddenly healed and they were coming back with all of these experiences. And now they just been going out and experience. And now here's Jesus and all the disciples are coming back and the crowds are all around and he's trying to debrief with them. And so. He decides we need to get out of here. We need some alone time. And so they're going to jump into a boat and they're going to head over to a deserted part up on the northern shore of Bethsaida. And so uh, it says that and the apostles, when they had returned, verse 10, told him all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida it means house of fish. And so it was there up on the northern part of the, the Sea of Galilee, deserted area that's kind of in between the Jewish section and also the, the Gentile section. And, and so he heads over there to be able to now start to, to decompress with the disciples here. And it says in verse 11, but when the multitudes knew it, in other words, as Jesus started off from one side and started heading across the sea of Galilee, they figured out the trajectory of which way the boat is going. And so they ran around the, the, the lake and got to where he was going to land. And so they, they followed him and it says, and, and he received them. And spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And so here again, we see that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, ministered to the spirit first and then to the physical after that. But notice this, that Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. That's the whole point of why he got into the boat, to to be with them privately. And now here are the crowds again. And what does Jesus do? How does Jesus handle interruptions in his schedule? when he's got the things that he's trying to do, but suddenly there are people who are bringing their need. And notice this, it says that he received them. He received them. And so he sets the example in our lives uh, with his life, and that was Jesus always put others first. Jesus said that we need to die to Ourselves pick up our cross and follow after him. And, and so you've got your whole schedule. You've got the busyness of your life. And then someone calls and they need a friend. They need someone to talk to or they need a meal brought over to them or they need a ride to the airport or they need some help moving out of their apartment. But uh, that's the day that you were going to go to Lake Mead. And, uh, and so, you know, you've got to... How do we handle interruptions in our lives, in our schedule with the need of others. And here what we see is Jesus always set down his own life to be able to take care of others and to bless others. He received them. It says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed. Look at most of those that had need of healing. No, he he healed those that had The need of healing. So he stays until the end and he's ministering. Now the disciples, they're starting to get nervous because it's starting to get late in the day. And they're out in the middle of no one. And there's a large crowd that had chased around the Sea of Galilee. This is a crowd of 5,000 men, we're going to find out. Which means when you add women and children, it's about 20 thousand people so i want you to know that this is the size of t-mobile during a playoff game okay the crowd that is there there—twenty thousand, you know that's there so they're looking at this crowd of people that's out in the middle of nowhere there's no provision there's no porta potties there's no restaurants there's no anything and it's starting to get dark and they're there because uh, they have come to see Jesus. And so they assess that, uh, that the solution to the problem is Jesus needs to tell everybody that they need to scatter now. They need to break up so that they can go and, uh, and receive the refreshment that they need and, and to take care of their lodgings. And so here's what I love. is they, While Jesus is busy healing everybody, they're having a committee meeting. And then they're going to go and let Jesus know what he needs to do. <laughs> cause they figured it out. And I was wondering to myself, have you ever done the same thing? you ever have a problem in your life and then you figure out the answer to the problem in your life? And then all you have to do is let God know of the answer to the problem that you have. If he would just do that for you, everything would be great in your life. And so they're going to go and tell Jesus what he needs to do. But what they're going to find out is Jesus is then going to tell them what they need to do. And, and it's always better to be listening to Jesus than to be telling Jesus uh, what to do you <laughs> And so when the day began to wear away, the 12, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. So they let, they let Jesus know, hey, Jesus, we don't know if you noticed, it's starting to get late, and there's not a lot of food around here, and so here's the solution. Send everybody away. But verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat seriously if you were one of the disciples and he said that to them what would you think i i mean you're in the middle there's a crowd of t-mobile people standing there in front of you and he says to you no you give them something to to eat okay How many problems are there with that plan, right there? I mean, a, the provision of food. How how much food do you need for twenty thousand people? B, how do you cook it? Uh, How do you deliver it? Where do you get it? How do you? I mean, you give them something to eat, and so suddenly Jesus is telling them to do the impossible. I, I mean, that's just that's just. Impossible. That is impossible. And, and so what do they do? They look at the impossibility of what Jesus is asking them. They actually start getting their calculator out, they get their math going, you know, of how impossible what this is. Why I can't possibly do what God is asking me to do. And and how many times have you found yourself in that situation? Where you say, I can't possibly do what God is asking me to do? Sometimes it can be in your job where, where God's calling you to be honest and not lie and to not change the numbers. And, and he doesn't care that that's the way that the industry operates and everybody does that. And he's asking you to stand up. But if I stand up, then I'm going to lose my job and this is going to be so I can't I can't possibly do what you're asking me to do. Many times in relationships, I can't possibly stay pure before I'm married. That's just not even like realistic. Like who would even date me if I told them that we're not, we're not even going to, you know, I can't possibly do that. I can't, I, I cannot do, it's impossible. What God, what you're asking is impossible. And when we look at the standards of God or we look at what God is laying on our heart and we go that man, that, that is impossible. That's impossible. That is impossible. And that's the situation that, that they were in. It, you're asking me to do something that is just simply not possible. And then, and then we give all the reasons of why it's impossible, why it's impossible. And so the, they give them the reasons. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. And and that's sarcasm, in case you didn't recognize that. Because they were, again, out in the middle of nowhere. And there was not a Costco back then that could feed 20,000 people. And that you could get to real quick before they close. For there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and and made them all sit down. See, here's the thing. God was never asking. Jesus was not asking them to feed them in their own strength. It wasn't about their provision. They're just the instrument of God's provision in the very same way when he sent them out and told them to take nothing. What? They were going to rely on God's provision in their life. And now when he is telling them to feed him, he's not telling them to feed him with your own resources. They took resources. They took an inventory and found out they've got, you know, five loaves and two little sardines. That's all that they've got you know, to to feed 20,000 people. But Jesus didn't tell them to take inventory. Jesus told him, just feed them. And with God's provision, we can do whatever it is that God asks us to do and what God calls us to do. God knows what he is going to do when he asks you to do something. And he knows the provision that he has, and he knows the provision that you need in order to do what he's calling you to do. And so all we need to do is by faith say yes and start moving and say, Lord, unless you do this, this whole thing is going to fall apart. I want you to know that the the definition of ministry uh, that I was given when I was in the school of ministry, they said, if you're not 10 feet over your head, you're not in ministry yet. You're in ministry the minute that you're like, I can't do this. This is impossible for me. And God says, okay, now we're working together. Because <laughs> up until then, you're a solo act with the spectator. And he's not asking you to be a solo act in your life with him spectating. He is talking about being the provision in your life for great things. If you're only going to operate in your life on your provision, think of how limited your resources are. But when you are now just going to be a conduit of God's provision, think of how limitless what God can do in your life. And so they're still looking at their provision and looking at the problem of God's instruction going, I can't do that with what I have. And God's answer, I never asked you to. I never asked you to. I'm just asking you to just follow instructions and get moving and watch what we do together. And watch what we do together. And so they begin. They say, okay, what do you want me to do? And they say, everybody into 50s. Put them into groups of 50s. Now, I'm going to tell you something. For those who believe that Jesus was possibly the Messiah and that he was going to raise up an army and overthrow Rome, Jesus starts putting people into camps of 50. And this is looking like a military operation now. And they're starting to get excited. But Jesus has no intention of overthrowing Rome He's talking about overthrowing the power of sin and death in our life. That's what he's overthrowing. And so then he took, notice, then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And 12 baskets of the leftover Fragments were taken up by them So we see the disciples now ministering To others first notice that they didn't Eat themselves and then go And serve others that they served Everybody else first and when you Are putting others first look at the Provision that now they had in their Lives they started uh, With five loaves Of bread and two fish and in the End after they served everybody else They had 12 baskets of Fragments one for each Of them, and so again, you see the economy of God when you take care of others, then God is going to bless you and take care of you, and so. We see here that that now they depart. And in verse 18, we find that once again, Luke shifts gears on us. And we go from the Sea of Galilee all the way up to the northernmost part of Israel. The crowds are so great. Jesus cannot stay around the Sea of Galilee without the crowds chasing him. And so he retreats. He retreats all the way up uh, underneath Mount Hermon and and to the area that's called Caesarea Philippi. Now, one of the interesting things about the backdrop of Caesarea, of Philippi is that there is this huge cave. It's this cavernous cave that, and out of this cave comes water. There is this spring that bubbles up and the water comes out and that becomes the headwaters to the Jordan River that flows down into the Sea of Galilee. And because there is this great river that comes out of this cave, they believed that this was the entrance into Hades, that that you could get to the underground through this uh, river. And so this was the place of all type of pagan worship. There were pagan idols that were up there. There was pagan altars and there was temples that were there and it was all caught across this cliff to where the mouth of this cave was. And it was the center uh, of this worship that was going on up there. And so Jesus has withdrawn with his disciples and they're against the backdrop of all of these false religions and all of this pagan worship that is going on as Jesus is with his disciples there. It's against that backdrop that he is going to ask them who they say that he is. Let's see how Luke records it. It says, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So he was doing a USA survey snapshot there, you know, a quick poll for the day. And, uh, hey, you've been out feeding the people. You've got your ears to the ground. You hear what people are saying. What are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? What's the word on the street? And so he asks the disciples that question. So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And verse 20, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In Matthew's gospel, he says it a little bit more explicitly. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, and you are the son of God. And we see that... Suddenly now Jesus affirms that with them and in the other gospel it says that Jesus answers Peter and says that flesh and blood has not revealed that to you but my father who is in heaven has revealed that to you in effect what does Jesus say you are right I am the Messiah I am the son of God and we see Jesus now affirming his identity and you can imagine the disciples eyes as they just looked at each other and he Is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now remember that there is in scriptures two portraits of the Messiah. There is the portrait of the conquering king Messiah, and then there is the portrait of the suffering servant. But they always, the Jews just like the conquering king one, the one where the government's going to be upon his shoulders and it will never end. He'll sit upon the throne of David and his rule will be in majesty and power and authority and dominion over the whole earth. And so they love all of the conquering king prophecies. But there's all of these other prophecies about the suffering servant Messiah. And so they just kind of dismiss those and don't know what to do with those. And uh, But here are the two portraits because Christ has two comings and so when he says that he's the messiah they instantly assume conquering king messiah and this is exciting and we're on the ground floor and let's go overthrow rome right now i mean this is now the thoughts that they have and so jesus follows that instantly verse 21 and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one he doesn't want anybody to know at this point That he's just affirmed to them that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Why? Because they've got a wrong concept of the Messiah. And so he's going to have to help them to understand the right concept before uh, they're going to be able to go and to tell everybody that that he is the Messiah. And look at what he says next. He gives four prophecies right in, in the next step. And all of these have Old Testament scriptures that make up the portrait of the suffering servant Messiah. But these are the ones that go right over the head uh, of the Jews and went right over their head as well. He says in verse 22, saying the son of man, number one, must suffer many things. Number two, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Number three, and be killed. Number four, and be raised the third day. And so immediately he gives them four prophecies that they are going to see fulfilled in the very near future. You would think that Jesus, just having said this to them, right, that after Jesus' crucifixion he says that he's going to be killed and then he's going to be raised on the third day. Wouldn't you have thought that on the third day they would have camped out there waiting for him, you know, for him to come out of the tomb? But you remember that when the angel tells them that, he says, and he reminds them of the words that Jesus had spoken to them and he brings it to their remembrance and they're like, oh yeah they had said it why couldn't they hear it they couldn't hear it because they already had a preconceived notion he had just said he's the messiah and they're on the conquering king and he says some things about dying in persecution and this and that but man they are already on to the their whole life they had been taught and told what it's going to mean when the messiah comes And so the Jewish hope is the hope of the Messiah. That is their hope to this very day. Their hope is the Messiah and the return of the Messiah and how everything's going to change when Messiah comes. So when Jesus affirms that he's the Messiah, man, I think that's the last word that they heard. And then into their expectation of what the Messiah was going to do. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for just a minute. Back to verse 10, back to when the disciples had returned. And it says, and then he took them and went aside privately. It was that going aside privately that just really struck my heart that I just wanted to just key in on for a second. It's wonderful to gather together as a body of believers and to worship corporately. And it's wonderful to pray corporately. And it's wonderful to study the word of God and corporately. But there is also something to be said for privately getting alone with God. The Lord. And while the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling together of the brethren, there is also the time where the Lord is seeking to draw us aside to minister to us just personally, just privately through his word. And so to me, this speaks of our devotions. And so I just wanted to reaffirm with everybody how important devotions are, that we are doing our devotions, that we're having that time alone with the Lord on a daily basis, that, that every single day try and set aside a minimum of 15 minutes. Think about this. You're going to have a 15-minute conversation with God somewhere in the course of the day. And let me ask you this. As you look at your itinerary of what's coming up this next week, what would be more important than a 15-minute conversation with God? And so spending 15 minutes. Now, here's the thing. God says that he'll meet us in his word. This is the meeting place right here, and it's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just a book. It's not just filled with information. God now supernaturally has empowered this book to be able to connect with us. He says, you come meet me and I'll meet you here in my word. And so when we do devotions real quick, I wanted to just make sure that when when we're opening up the word of God, And we're going to do devotions. Now we read two chapters a day as a congregation Our through the word app and our through the word cards just gives us that so that we're all reading together the same scriptures. It makes it convenient for us to be able to talk to one another about the same scriptures that we read and what God showed me today and what God showed you today as everybody's reading the same scriptures. But, but here's the thing is we're not reading the scriptures to be able to check it off in a box and say, you know what? I needed to read two chapters. Okay. Check. Did that. We're not reading it for information or for knowledge. We're reading it for relationship when we're doing devotions. We're asking God, okay, God, talk to me. God, talk to me. Not talk to me through information. Talk to me just like when we talk to one another. And so when we open up the Bible, to me, physically opening up the Bible is a reminder that what I'm doing is I'm physically opening up my heart to the Lord. I'm saying, okay, Lord, here's my heart and here's my life. Talk to me about anything that you want to talk to me about, and then we start reading. And what I'm reading now, and and I'm reading, it, and what I'm waiting for is the Lord to start to interrupt my reading uh, with a conversation. And so I start reading, and all of a sudden I'll come across and talks about self control. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden I'll have this thought. So remember, when I say God talking to us, remember that it's going to talk to you in your own voice. It's going to be your own thoughts. It's going to sound just like this. Not going to be an external audible thought but I'm reading along and all of a sudden it says self-control and all of a sudden I'll have this thought you know yesterday you didn't really exercise self-control I'll be like uh, yeah that's true isn't it <laughs> and how all of a sudden what's God doing God starts talking so you know what I do I, I stop reading right then because now I'm talking to the Lord and so now I just let my mind go and, and all of a sudden it'll be and, and this is kind of a pattern in your life do you see it and all of a sudden now i'll just be having these thoughts about self control successes that i've had with it and failures that i've had with it and 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 the lord is now speaking to me about self-control in my life and uh, and so this is now this is the conversation that we're having and then all of a sudden i'll think what am i going to have for lunch <laughs> and i'll go okay that's not the lord anymore you know now we're done okay you know talking with a thought like that so what do i do uh, if i've still got time as i start reading again Okay, until the next thing and suddenly there is an illumination. The other thing. So what you're doing is that you're just keeping track of what you're thinking. Just watch what you're thinking and where your thoughts go. Pay attention to anybody that he places on your heart. When you sit down and do your devotion, then all of a sudden you think about your mom or you think about your brother or your sister or somebody and you just randomly think about them. Possibly that wasn't a random thinking that you ask God to talk to you, and then all of a sudden these two people are who you thought about during that time. Make a note of that. Pick up the phone, call them, see if they're okay. Just just uh, reach out and see, it. and you'll see how God will start to direct. They're like, "Oh, I was just going to call you. I, I needed to talk to you about blah 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 blah." And it's like, oh, God told me to call you first, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, saved you the dime. <laughs> You know, and you'll just start to see how, how God, so that, that time there. Now, one last thing, and, and we'll go. One of the things that I believe, listen to this, because I, I think it's interesting, is that I think that one of the chief tools of the enemy to get you out of your devotion is to have it turn into Bible study, is to have it turn into Bible study. See, devotion is not Bible study, And Bible study will kill your devotion because here's what happens. Okay, so here I am and I'm opening up and I'm I'm reading the Bible and you know and I'm wanting to talk with the Lord and the Lord starts talking to me and, and all of a sudden you know in the verse it says and they walked from Galilee to Jerusalem you know and I go. I wonder how far is Galilee from Jerusalem. And you know what? Here, let me go. I'm going to look this up in my concordance. I'm going to go get my dictionary. And I'm going to find this out. And I'm going to measure the distance and all of that. And the Lord's like, hey, 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 I was talking to you. And now you're like, yeah, but i got to find out the distance here between these two things here. You see, Bible study is focusing on what you don't know. But devotions is just about a relationship and focusing what do you completely understand and what is the Lord ministering to you on. And you can shut down the voice of the Lord real quick when you turn it into information processing and into intellectually understanding what's going on with the scriptures. And so the enemy will pull you right out. The enemy does not want you, first of all, doing devotions But if you're going to do devotions, he's going to try and turn your devotions into Bible study so that you're not talking to the Lord and you're not cultivating that sensitivity uh, of that conversation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just help us. There's nothing more exciting than having you talk to us and lead us and guide us. And so, Lord, we want that. And so, Father, would you help us to cultivate that? that devotion time when we just get away privately, when we go aside privately with you and allow you to just speak to our hearts, to lead us and guide us. And the psalm it said today that your desire is to guide us with your eye, that we would be so in tune with you that you could just direct us with your eye. So Lord, we want that level of intimacy and communication. And so Lord, help us, bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.